This is Tamar Labicki, and welcome to the Regenerative Goods Podcast. On today's episode, I interview Christopher Abbott about his company, Perennial Pantry, and specifically about the exciting perennial relative of wheat, Kernza. Christopher talks about growers of Kernza, the Land Institute, the University of Minnesota, and Perennial Pantry as a joyful, collaborative community. He also speaks of the positive impact on the land that growing perennially has, and his excitement about engaging in a generations-long project to better our landscape through the foods we enjoy. Simultaneously, like the huge opportunity of regenerative agriculture that also often I think is not being pulled in or acknowledged or talked about is like regenerative agriculture is not some new genius idea. Regenerative agriculture is trying to heal back to what indigenous people have known for a long, long time, that we're not separate from nature, that we are fully a part of it, and that sustainable, joyful, long-term ways of life are what forests and prairies are already doing. The first question I thought I would start with is, how did you get into regenerative agriculture and how did you come to starting Perennial Pantry? Great. Yeah. So I um, grew up in Northfield, Minnesota, which is a small college town about 45 minutes south of the Twin Cities. And uh, my, my parents are from the East Coast. They lived in a variety of places before we moved there when I was two. And so I did not come from agriculture. I didn't come from farming, but I grew up surrounded by large-scale row crop commodity grain growing, driving past corn and soy fields wherever we went, and really didn't think about that for a long time until as I was trying to get out of that place and go elsewhere and, and see other parts of the world. And at that point, I became a lot more interested in, and realized the importance of the climate crisis and realized the importance of food and food systems within thinking about that, both as an everyday connection to an extractive industry and and the connection of putting food inside of ourselves and the community aspect of this ritual of multiple times a day sitting down and both being with people and connecting directly with foods from the natural world. And so cooking, you know, cooking and food was essential to my family growing up and really the way that we spent time together. And so as I was leaving home and and before college and into college, I was really studying and interested in environmental studies with a focus on food and on culture. I studied anthropology um, and became, as I worked on different farms and thought more about food systems, I got really interested in grains and thinking about the landscape that I was from and what, what are different ways of taking care of it, what are different ways of still farming it, but not sending soil down our local Cannon River into the Mississippi and not all of the environmental challenges that come from large-scale chemical agriculture for both the environment, for the local communities, and for the growers themselves. And so I started focusing more on supply chains and becoming interested in the processing step in between and feeling that as I started dabbling around and growing small plots of grains, I think I first grew some malting barley on a goat dairy that I was working on out in Maine, and realize like you can you can do it you can grow whatever you want farmers are going to be willing to it just depends on where that can go and markets 
for them to say, this is worth it, instead of just going to the local elevator and dropping off another harvest of corn. And so I first worked with a fellow out in Maine, starting this craft malt house. Malting is this processing step in the brewing supply chain, where that's akin to milling. You don't make bread out of wheat, you make it out of flour, and a miller needs to do that milling process. And similarly, you don't make beer out of barley. A maltster first makes malt, malted barley. And it's this sprouting, drying down process that makes sugars available. And so I worked with a fellow who was trying to make Maine beer truly local. And that was sort of this, at this time, and a lot of small malting companies were being started across the U.S in the belief that we had local food, we had local beer, and they didn't talk to each other at all. And that the main ingredient in craft beer was still coming from very large-scale corporate supply chains, and that ore was being imported from Europe. So I started there, then I became pretty interested in the equipment of that. All of the small malting companies as they were starting, they were the main problem they were running into is that no one makes small-scale processing equipment. You can pick a tomato, and then you can slice it and eat it. And grains take all of these different machines to grow it, to process it, to turn it just even into an ingredient, and then more equipment to turn it into bread or cereal or beer, all these different things. And so I first started a company building small-scale malting equipment, and we were trying to make it easier for people to sort of get into these supply chains, easier for them to innovate and play around. And we did that for a while and really realized that did it impact the landscape more broadly and in the way that would meet the value and my values and my team's values? We really needed to one, become the processor ourselves, not build processing equipment for other people to be processors. And two, local is compelling to some people, but I don't think a big enough story and pitch for people to believe in to really change what they're doing. A lot of people drink craft beer because it's fun and it's like the cool local bar. It's not because necessarily of the agricultural supply chain behind it. And so then several years into that business, we got connected with Kernza. I'd known about Kernza previously and was excited by it, but didn't realize how far along it was in development and also did not realize that there weren't really small companies that were trying to make it happen. And so in 2019, two different connections within my community put me in touch with one person at the Land Institute. Tessa Peters, who runs their commercialization efforts, and then a person with a very similar job, Colin Kierton at the University of Minnesota, who also does supply chain and scaling and commercialization. And they both were looking for different types of help. We started doing some malting research on Kernza for the Land Institute or in partnership with them. And then we helped folks at the U of M trying to figure out where to store Kernza, how to distribute it as the first crops that they were helping get to market needed a home. And it's just sort of spiraled since then where we've really transformed our focus from this malting equipment and instead are all in on Kernza and trying to figure out how do you build supply chains? How do you think holistically about how this crop goes to market so that it's not just an environmental story, but there are economic and social benefits to it as well? And just how do you make this successful? How do you cook with it, bake with it, launch products with it, make it a lot more accessible to people. And that's sort of where we are today. So could you talk a little bit about Kernza and then maybe put it within that context of commodity crops? Because my understanding is it's it's got some barriers before breaking out into maybe the place in the market that wheat has right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. So Kernza is the trademarked name of a plant called intermediate wheatgrass. And scientists at the Land Institute, before that at the Rodale Institute, have been working since the 80s and trying to domesticate this wild crop. Intermediate wheatgrass has been grown as a forage in the U.S. since the 1920s as a grass crop. And before that has its own history of use by people on, I think, the like Eurasian Russian steppes area of the world. And so they've been trying to domesticate this crop into the first perennial grain that is commercially viable. And so to first understand that, we have to think about what a perennial is versus what an annual is. So all of grain agriculture today is dependent on annual crops, which means plants that are planted in the spring, grow their life cycle once, and then die and are gone, and then need to be replanted the coming year. And those annuals require the disturbance of soil in order to be planted. So that's why we have tillage, we have plowing, we have large-scale transformation of soil in order to create seed beds for planting these crops. That disturbance of soil is the base of a variety of different environmental challenges. And so a perennial is a plant like a tree that is planted once and that develops a large root system and keeps coming back year after year. So grasses are perennials. The reason that the Midwest has such healthy, fertile soil historically is because it was covered by a grassland prairie. And so the vision of Kernza is can we develop an agriculture that is rooted in natural systems? Because when you look at a prairie or a forest, there's not disturbed soil. There is year-round cover, and there's a diverse variety of species that are all living together. And so Kernza, at a, at a big scale, is a belief that 10,000 years ago we messed up and we started developing an agriculture developed on monocrops, in which it's just one type of crop being grown in a field, uh, and in which you need soil disturbance for that to succeed. And instead, can we mimic natural systems that are much more resilient and healthy and sustainable long-term while still harvesting food crops from them? So Kearns is sort of the first crop coming out of this vision, and there are many behind it. At the University of Minnesota, they have 16 different crops in development. I think the Land Institute maybe has eight to 10, and they're trying to develop perennial or winter annual versions of all major oil seeds and grain crops. First to grow by themselves and longer term to grow in perennial polycultures where you could have perennial wheat and a perennial corn and a perennial oil seed all together in basically a prairie that you can harvest food crops off of. So Kearns is sort of the tip of the spear, the first one that has gotten far enough in breeding and development that the seed size is now viable for it to be a food crop and where it's now starting to be commercialized out. Your second second part of your question was in like telling that environmental story and possibility of Kernza or? I guess my second question was, it seems like you specifically were drawn to grains because of the large amount of land that's used to grow them. And you saw if we can change grains, then we can have a really big impact. Kernza at this point, seems like it's not going to take wheat's place in the market because 
it's still very small, and my understanding is the gluten content is lower, so it's harder to make various products that we're used to eating with wheat. With that in mind, how do you see working on Kernza in your bigger vision of having an effect on a large land area? So Wes Jackson is the founder of the Land Institute, which is the nonprofit that really has been carrying the vision of Kernza. And he has this quote, if your life's work can be accomplished in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. And, you know, they've, they've been around since the 70s. And so this is a project that is already decades in the making. And I think that how that frames it is current agriculture is 10,000 years in and we're a few decades in and we've got a crop. That's a huge accomplishment and a huge start. And that truly trying to transform how most of the world grows its food is a really big task and a really big vision that is worth it. But also it's not going to be 2025 and we've replaced wheat. There's no, there's no chance of that. I think it's how do you develop systems and build momentum over time to really try to amplify that impact and scale it up. But you have to have a really thoughtful and solid foundation from which to start in order to really drive lasting impact. From a genetics standpoint, Kernza is this attempt to domesticate this wild grain, but it's not the end goal. The, the thought is that, that that will only go so far. That will never actually be a perennial wheat. And so then breeders are taking Kernza genetics and breeding them into annual wheat in order to perennialize wheat. And so I think the longer term play of if a derivative of Kernza truly would replace wheat globally, you know, is that 2050, 2060, like that's down the road. And this is really how do we keep building the snowball and rolling it faster and faster down the hill and try to set up the supply chains and the systems around it so that as the genetics continue to improve, we can imagine more and more impact. Kernza is a cousin of wheat, is, is how people talk about it, a distant cousin of wheat. And it has gluten, but different types and less. And it has more bran and it's still significantly smaller. So it's not at the point at all of a one-for-one wheat replacement. We really think about it more as like a pastry flour that can work well in non-yeasted baked goods. It needs the help of wheat in many types of yeasted baked goods. And so it's a stepping stone and it's like a, a big first step in really trying to start introducing perennials into row crop agriculture. So what is the supply chain like now? You said you're in the process of building the supply chain, building the systems. What what does the supply chain look like right now? So it's an exciting moment in time where these decades of research and breeding and, and efforts to make this a viable crop have gotten to this tipping point where there's an official variety from the University of Minnesota. There are more coming soon. There are growers who've been growing it for years. There's agronomic support. There's published research on the environmental impacts of it. There's sort of a lot of the push work of trying to get it out into the world, sort of the initial research and proof of concept and early field needed to say, hey, this, this is a possibility. We could actually go somewhere with this. And now it's sort of tipping over to the point where for Kerns that really start having a larger impact. It's entirely based on people knowing about it and buying it and eating it and incorporating it into their lives. And the more people that do that, the more Kerns that can be pulled out 
onto the landscape, growers can say, okay, there's actually a market for this thing. And we can start seeing a more genuine impact beyond the big vision and possible impact. And so the supply chain is sort of where the rubber meets the road in trying to get this crop to market. It has had huge, huge improvements in breeding. And it's also still sort of a, a new technology. When a grower harvests Kernza, we buy it directly from growers. And when a, a big bin or trailer or tote of Kernza shows up to our processing facility, there's a lot of not Kernza in there. There's a lot of hulls. There's a lot of chaff. There's a lot of, of other stuff. You know, we're, we're very happy if 60% of what we buy from a grower is actually Kernza. And so the supply chain is where it goes from this plant grass into a, a real food that people can use and work with. Perennial Pantry is a company buys from growers and then does everything before getting it onto grocery store shelves or shipping it out to folks across the country. And we do all of that in order to make a quality product and in order to be able to do it. It's still such a new thing that it's not quite ready to just immediately integrate into existing supply chains. Its size impacts that a lot. It has some quirks still, frankly. And so you can't just run it through existing processing equipment that's set up for wheat and be successful. And so there are a lot of food companies that do a lot of management, but don't tangibly work on their food necessarily. Like they might design a brand, develop a recipe, and then they'll have an ingredient sourcer that'll go to a distributor. They'll send that to a co-packing or co-manufacturing facility that'll actually make the product, bag it, then that'll go to a distributor and then it'll go to grocery stores. They're doing a lot of phone calls and they're intimately involved, but it's not really hands-on work. And we realized that that's just not possible with Kernza or it wasn't possible when we started and that we really needed to be both building relationships with local growers and all of the different folks at nonprofits and research entities and different organizations that are trying to make this successful. And then just physically manufacture our own processing equipment and build out a facility to be able to turn this into grain and flour and then future products. Kernza is at this exciting moment where there's there's more knowledge of it. It's still a very unknown thing. And there are a few different companies that are trying to get it out into the world and, and make it easier for people to access. And it's still small. You know, that, that's part of the interest of it, that we've got a very convoluted, large, broken food system where I think if Kernza represents the possibility of regenerative agriculture and stepping away from extractive systems, by extraction, I mean... Soil erosion, I mean pollution of our earth, I mean pollution of our water, and I mean extraction from rural communities, from growers. You know, we, we really have an, a system where basically grocery stores squeeze distributors who squeeze food companies who squeeze farmers, and it's just sort of a cycle of taking. It's not a cycle of trying to build a holistically minded system that, that can give, that can have gratitude, that can benefit all of the folks who are participating in it and part of what's been necessary, but also just what we believe in is trying to build a shorter supply chain where there can be genuine relationships across it. And that with those relationships, we can try to step out of extractive mindsets and build something different that can really not just be positive for soil, but can be positive for human communities and economies. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Because of COVID, I've been thinking a lot recently about the vital importance of friendship and how life is really just about interacting with people and getting to have conversations. And I feel like in your work, 
if you're so closely related with your suppliers and the breeders of the crop that you're using and everything, it just must be so much more satisfying than one of these longer supply chains where people don't really know each other. Absolutely. From the like joy of it, of relating with others, of relating to this crop, it's a perennial. That means that it's around year after year and that there can be more of a relationship, I think, to the, the literal plant itself, to the landscape that it creates. But also just the optimism of Kernza is that it's not, you know, with our with our malting equipment business, it was sort of like we were a few people trying to push this thing forward and it was hard. And Kernza is really hard too, but there are hundreds of different brains working on different parts of the challenge and really trying to put this thing out into the world and trying to create something that is not for the benefit of one entity or one participant, but really has a wide ranging benefit to so many different people and places and plants and environments. Because of that, it feels like this joyful, optimistic opportunity where I think it can really happen. And even if it's like a wildly ambitious idea to transform how food is grown globally, it needs to happen. And I think the way you start that is you have a small group that becomes a mid-scale group that becomes a big group that just has something better. Than, than what exists. What exists just is not, not good for really anyone or anything. It's just full of problems other than, you know, a small number of people that can make a lot of money off of it. And we need a system that is totally transformed. And Kernza, you know, is one specific crop and is not like a silver bullet, but is a pretty amazing opportunity, I think, to pursue that. Yeah, speaking of joy, one thing that I've heard is that regenerative agriculture can be very joyful for the people growing the food because they become more acquainted with the land and they can spend more time solving problems and understanding the soil. So I'm wondering, because your supply chain is so so short, if you have gotten the chance to visit farms and what you've experienced there. Yeah, totally. So we primarily source our grain from Minnesota and from growers that are nearby. So we've been to lots of different farms that are growing Kernza and there's certainly joy in it. I think that simultaneously like the huge opportunity of regenerative agriculture that also often I think is not being pulled in or acknowledged or talked about is like regenerative agriculture is not some new genius idea. Regenerative agriculture is trying to heal back to what indigenous people have known for a long, long time, that we're not separate from nature, that we are fully a part of it and that sustainable, joyful, long-term ways of life are what forests and prairies are already doing. And so that's tangibly what happens out in Kernza fields, whether that's a connection to a plant or a place and the beauty of it. There's one grower, Caleb Anderson, over near Cannon Falls, Minnesota, which is not too far from here, who his farm is right on the edge of the Driftless, which is this beautiful region in southeastern Minnesota and southwestern Wisconsin and northeastern Iowa. And it's the Driftless because within the upper Midwest, it's the area where the glaciers didn't hit. And so we have big, flat, open landscapes in a lot of the Midwest. But in the Driftless, they have this karst geology that creates these beautiful valleys and hills and topography. And Caleb's farm is right on the edge of the Driftless and his current field sort of juts out on this ridge where you can see the land falling off behind it. And you can think about both the tangible impact on the water systems that are 
that his fields drain into that are being significantly less impacted or positively impacted by the Kernza and by the pasture and by the ways that he's growing food. And then there's also, I think, the joy of Kernza of the relationships of it. Another partner in St. Peter, Minnesota, Dan Kaufman, who is just so happy and elated when he drops Kerns off or picks up compost from us because it's not some faceless commodity that's disappearing into the you know, ethanol supply chain or something. And instead it's like, hey, you know, my son can come with me and then we can see where this thing that we produce, how it gets turned into a food that is on our local grocery store shelf. And like, what a much more meaningful way of life to be connected with all of these other people and plants in your place and seeing how you're really feeding them. And and you're part of this attempt to try to clean up the environment in your local place. Yeah. So could you explain that a little bit? How does Kernza positively affect the land and positively like affect the greater environment and uh, the greater community? Yeah. So it all comes down to soil. Uh, Soil is this funny thing that, you know, can not really come into most of our minds most of the time. It's dirt, whatever. But uh, soil is the foundation of, you know, a significant amount of, of life on earth and is this very finite resource because it takes so long to create it. And soil has been used and abused and really extracted from for a long time. And that means erosion, which comes from exposing that soil and letting wind or water blow it off, run it downhill and send it, you know, really export it out from wherever it is. And that use and abuse of soil does a variety of things. You know, our our oceans are our biggest carbon bank on earth, but soils are our second largest and our carbon bank that we can most quickly impact. You can lose carbon out of soil and send it up into the atmosphere when you're when you're disturbing it and tilling it but you can also put carbon back down into our soils when you're taking care of them and you're not doing that extractive disturbance the health of soils directly impacts carbon and the health of soils directly impacts our ability to produce food and the health of soils directly impacts water on the water side that's because when you're disturbing soil and it's not being held in place by roots, it can be eroded out. So you can have dirty, muddy uh, bodies of water, but also any chemicals that you're applying to it that are not getting taken up by plants, those are running off too. And so turns as an environmental impact all comes down to its deep rooted nature as a crop that since it's a perennial, those roots grow, develop, get 10 feet deep and hold that soil year after year. And in doing that, you're preventing erosion, you're building soil by the plant taking carbon out of the atmosphere and and storing it down in its roots and in that soil system. And then you're preventing chemicals or the dirt itself running off into water systems and watersheds. And so the published research on the positive impact of kerns on the environment is focused on water quality because, you know, if a farmer sprays a fertilizer on a field of tiny corn plants, those plants are not big enough to absorb the fertilizer. And a significant amount of that nitrogen just runs into watersheds and then creates huge nitrate issues in drinking water all across the country. 
the vast majority of Kernza is grown without chemicals right, right now. And the long-term vision is, can you grow Kernza in polycultures with legumes that are nitrogen fixing and that are sort of a self-fulfilling ecosystem? But from a research standpoint and an acknowledgement that the vast majority, you know, I think, I think 1% of U.S. agriculture is organic, vast majority is chemical-based. Kernza with its root system, it doesn't allow you know, that, that fertilizer to run off into water systems and, and pulls it up. So that the published research is really how Kernza can prevent pollution of water. And there are a whole lot of smart people doing a lot of research on the carbon sequestration opportunity that Kernza presents. There is a story there and the, the research hasn't yet been published. I think you know, we're all excited to see the published numbers and have a sense of what the numbers are. And they're optimistic and positive of how, if blown out to a really big scale, Kernza and other perennial crops could have an incredibly significant impact on the drawdown of carbon and storage in soil systems. And that that is a big, complicated scientific topic in which it's never going to be simplified down to a pound of Kernza equals 10 pounds of carbon being pulled from the atmosphere because it's so dependent on place and moisture and type of soil and how things are being grown. But holistically, at sort of a high level, it can be a really potent tool in trying to fight climate change. Regenerative agriculture to me was initially really exciting because of the idea that we can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil. So that's initially why I was attracted to it. And then I think the more that I learned about it, I got excited because Unfortunately, you know, we are already experiencing the effects of global warming just with extreme weather, droughts, and floods. When I learned more about it, it became exciting because it seems like a tool for us to continue to live and continue to eat in a warming world, in a world with more extreme weather. This idea of the water holding capacity of the soil. So if there's a big flood that the soil can hold that water instead of it running off. Or if there's a drought, those deep roots being able to go grab the water if it's not readily available. So I was wondering if that's something that you've actually observed with your farming partners, because I'm sure there have been events. I mean, they're all over, right? Like too much rain at one time, not enough rain at the other. Is that something you've actually like seen or talked about? Absolutely. There just last year with the big drought, there are growers, not that we work directly with, but that I've heard about out in Montana who initially were apologetic to folks that they weren't going to harvest the grain off of Kernza that year. And it was because Kernza was the only grain pasture that they had that all of their other grasses and, and crops were not thriving or surviving in the drought. And that Kernza offered basically the only thing that was still handling that drought and producing biomass on it. Part of what I haven't said is Kernza is a dual use crop. You plant Kernza in the fall, it establishes itself, goes dormant over the winter, and then starts growing immediately in the spring. A grower can graze it with animals then. They can then take a grain harvest in mid to late summer, and then they can bale draw off of that for their animals, and then sometimes even graze it again in the fall. It can be incorporated into a more complicated, diverse farm system and have multiple benefits of it. And so that's what those growers in Montana were seeing. 
maybe it's not a grain year, but this deep-rooted plant is still able to feed our cows or our herd of animals. And then also that perennial nature means as in Minnesota, we're getting wetter. Sometimes, you know, drought can, we, we had a big drought last year and it can certainly impact us. But in general, how we're trending is more and more intense, severe rain events. And since I first grew some barley out in Maine, I've maybe spent six or seven years growing grains on small scales. And just even at that small scale, I've experienced the impact where, well, it's March 16th. March 15th is the ideal day to plant barley in Minnesota historically. There's still snow. It's very, very wet right now. But because it's so wet, no one's going to go into fields for a while here. And you know, the, the longer it takes to get into a field, the more likely that your planting is just not going to get established as well, or it's going to grow more in the hot season when weeds are going to take off. There's just sort of a whole host of problems that can happen around reduced yield, increased disease pressure, increased weed pressure. And Kearns is, it was planted in the fall. It's fine. You know, it's just going to wake up and start growing. You don't have to go out in a heavy piece of machinery that's going to compact soil and get stuck in a big lake of water in your field. The crop's just established and fine. And so there's definitely resilience that's built in there in trying to think about how we can move forward as the climate crisis intensifies. In the same way that Kearns is a dual-use crop, it's also offers resiliency in many ways, whether that's just literally roots building soil and holding more water, or that small regional supply chains that are better able to adapt to folks' needs or that's relationships. You know, I think that in the same way that we need pretty tangible plant-based resiliency, we also need community resiliency. You know, when I feel fear about the future and where climate change is driving us, I'd way rather live in a community or a world where people are deeply interconnected and grateful for one another than a world of like scared individuals who are based in a scarcity mindset and are not working together. And I think that the way that Kearns is coming into the world is the first one and that that's like another whole layer of climate resiliency for those communities. Yeah, that seems absolutely necessary. Um, so I guess my last question would be, how do you enjoy eating Kernza? So we have a perennial test kitchen where Joe Kaplan, who runs our research and development and used to be a chef, has launched lots of great recipes. And then community members have sent in lots of great recipes to just try to have a space resource for people to know what to do with it. And in all of Joe's development, he has both a like a little crescent roll, dinner roll, and Scones, that both of those are just sort of, who, who cares about the environmental benefits? This thing is just delicious and just has like fabulous flavor and is a really fun, tasty thing to eat. So those are great. And then, I mean, genuinely, these crackers, I'm not just, I'm not just saying that they're good. They're really, they're rather delicious. And I think that Kearns really thrives in, and you, you can have a significantly higher inclusion rate when you're doing non-yeasted things. And so crackers, scones, rolls, things like that can have great flavor and also functionality, not feel like you're suffering with an ingredient, but like celebrating and using a really great ingredient. Well, I am excited to taste those crackers. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing this. What a cool project. I'm excited to hear your, your uh, interviews in the future.
The Regenerative Goods podcast was recorded at Full Track Productions in Seattle, Washington, and over video call. It was produced by Dave Dintenfass and Tamar Labicki, with original music by Sergi Feldman. The interview was conducted on March 16, 2022. Thanks again to our guest, Christopher Abbott. Check out the website for Perennial Pantry at perennial-pantry.com. Thanks again for listening.